Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Melissa Malewski, Senior Lecturer in American History at the University of Sussex. We will discuss her book, Litigating Across the Color Line, Civil Cases Between Black and White Southerners from the End of Slavery to Civil Rights. So welcome to the, welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I got to say, I really loved reading your book, which is equal parts fascinating and, you know, sadly harrowing, like so many uh, books about the African American experience. Um, But one of the things that really uh, impressed me was both how, you know, how rich in historical data and beautifully written. The book was, and I, I was wondering if we could start the conversation by you talking a little bit about how you arrived at the project and sort of the research process that you engaged in 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 writing the book. Absolutely. So, historians and legal scholars have, for decades, have largely not not kind of truly examined civil cases um, involving African Americans. If they have, they've usually looked at cases involving race, kind of explicitly involving questions of race. So cases over racial determination, um, cases over miscegenation, and the wide kind of range of civil cases um, that I found has largely just been assumed to not really exist. Um, and I think some of the assumptions are based on the fact that African Americans are doing so poorly in criminal cases during this time. So there's this thought that kind of how could they be bringing civil cases against whites if the courts are being leveraged so heavily against them in criminal cases. And I think there's been anecdotal evidence that seems to show that they're doing quite poorly and the courts are not really using them. But there hadn't been a wide-ranging examination of what's actually um, happening in all kinds of cases Um, civil cases involving African-Americans. And so I actually kind of got into my project from a tip from an archivist um, at the Georgia Archives. I always recommend talking to archivists as much as as possible. And so... So, so true. (laughs) This archivist kind of tipped me off to kind of thinking about um, these state um, Supreme Court cases and once I started digging into these cases, I found them to be this amazing kind of trove um, of, of stories and kind of um, data and really kind of fascinating um, insights into the legal experience of African-Americans and into their larger lives um, as well. Mm. So once I kind of realized that some of these cases actually existed, um, contrary to kind of the larger kind of um, thought on this. The way that I went about finding them was I actually turned to the legal database LexisNexis, and I began to run keyword searches across um, the state Supreme Court um, records of eight southern states. And I had to play around with the the different kind of keyword terms that I use. Um, and I use different keywords for different, different kind of periods of history when different kind of terms are being used to describe um, African Americans. But I 
in the end, kind of through running keyword searches across um, these eight state Supreme Courts, I eventually um, found over 1,300 case, civil cases that involved African Americans um, from the end of the Civil War, so in 1865, to the mid 20th century in 1950. And okay, so M- Melissa, which which eight states did you choose to study, and why? So I I've looked at a range of states across the South. So see if I could name them off. Um, I looked at Kentucky, Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia, Alabama, um, North Carolina, um, Virginia. And I tried to kind of pick a Tennessee. I tried to pick a range of kind of um, upper South states, states that had um, kind of along the coast, kind of farther, um, farther West that had a range of different attributes. Um, some of the states had uh, majority black populations. Others had um, had kind of smaller African American populations. Um, so, really tried to kind of get a sense of what was going on across the South. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in your reporting in the book, you you kind of break the story that you tell into three periods. And I was wondering if you could if you could kind of identify what those periods were and sort of why you chose to break up the story in that way. Sure. So I, well, I kind of going back to kind of the research process, I ended up going to the archives in all of these states and looking at the archival records of these, um, of these cases. And what I found in in these archival records, which were oftentimes two or 300 pages long, was that there's some real shifts at different periods of time. So I've, and they were, sometimes it's surprising times, not necessarily when you would think that shifts would be going on. So rather than African-Americans losing their right to litigate civil cases at the end of Reconstruction, um, as power really shifts in the U.S. South, I found that it was actually at the end of the 19th century as they, as African Americans are really being kind of disfranchised in very kind of um, large numbers, that their cases really kind of start to shift and are able to bring only a much narrower range of cases. They're having to kind of testify in particular ways in order to kind of get their cases to court. And then I see this shift again, starting in the 1920s. I think that it's it's tied again with kind of larger societal and kind of political factors um, mm. like the great migration, world war one, um, things that are also kind of changing during that period as well. Right. Yeah. And that really came across in the book, the way kind of changing social dynamics between African Americans and white Southerners over this long period of time that you studied really affected both the nature of the disputes, but also the nature of the kinds of actions that African-Americans seem to be able to successfully bring. Absolutely. I think this is one of the key findings of my book is that African-Americans are shifting the kind of civil litigation that they're bringing, as well as being limited in certain ways um, by outside factors during different periods of times and shifting in very pragmatic ways at times. So bringing the kinds of cases against whites 
that are possible um, in different periods of time. So when during kind of the first two decades of the 20th century, when I found that they're able to bring a much more limited range of cases, they're bringing those particular cases that um, that whites are allowing them to bring. They're making the arguments um, that oftentimes will allow them to win such cases. But as things begin to change, there's the pragmatically kind of bringing a wider range of cases, making stronger kind of claims for their rights um, as well. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I really love about your book and, and that makes it such a compelling read is the way that you use narrative and storytelling to really bring the data <laughs> to life as it were. So I was wondering if you could, if you could spend a couple minutes sort of talking about one of the stories from the early period that you talk about, like the sort of, even as the civil war is raging in the period immediately after the war, because I mean, I, I was personally, especially surprised that there was this kind of civil litigation taking place during during that period, and you really effectively kind of illustrate how you know newly freed African Americans in the South were able to leverage certain kinds of changes in Southern governance structure and relation to former slave masters in kind of achieving their pragmatic personal goals. Yeah, well, one of the stories that I start the book off with is the case of Henry Buey, who uh, during kind of the final uh, months of the Civil War, his master um, leaves him behind on the plantation. Um, and in as kind of the northern troops are in the area, Henry Buey finds um, a mule that's been left behind by General Sherman's troops. Um, after the end of the war, his former master returns to the plantation and asks him, um, essentially kind of tries to obtain this mule um, back from his former slave. And what I found was re really interesting about um, the civil case that ensues from this um, is that in the course of kind of the litigation, and first it's appealed to the Freedmen's Bureau, um, then it goes to the civil courts, it fundamentally changes the relationship between this former slave and former master, so much so that um, that Henry Buey stops working um, for his former master. He changes his surname, so changes it from his former master's surname, Buey, um, to Parker. Um, and so the litigation has this really kind of fundamental effect. And more so than this, um, Bui kind of is able to kind of actually, um, probably much to his former master's surprise, um, wins um, the civil suit um, as well. So this former slave who's really kind of just um, very kind of recently out of slavery is winning um, a case in a Southern in Southern courts um, against his former master. And I think that gives a sense of kind of, of what's kind of going on here um, in some of these cases. 
Yeah. And that was one of the most surprising findings in your book was how frequently, at least during certain periods, African-American litigants, often typically plaintiffs, were successful. Absolutely. It surprised me as well. So I found that across this entire period from 1865 to 1950, um, across these eight Supreme, um, these eight state Supreme Courts, so just kind of the highest level of, um, of state courts, they're winning 59% of their cases against whites. So across all of these eight states, I found this to be true. And I think this says a lot about the the strategies that African-Americans are using. I think it says some things about how whites are not seeing these cases as threatening in many cases, um, and they're allowing them to proceed. But I think really key here is kind of the actions that African-Americans are taking to win these battles um, in Southern courts. Yeah. Now, one thing I did note from your data was that, you know, I guess, unsurprisingly, the overall percentage of civil actions being filed by um, African-Americans was relatively low by comparison to those being filed by white Southerners for, uh, you know, a slew of of obvious reasons. But I, I did wonder, I mean, whether you think that there's a possibility that there was like some kind of selection effect going on potentially making the African-American litigants look more successful percentage-wise than maybe they actually were if, for example, they were only really going to bring the most effective or the most sort of – the cases where they had the very, very strongest position and the more more marginal ones might have been seen as not worth pursuing. It was just – I was kind of wondering what your thoughts would be on that. Absolutely. I think that's – certainly kind of part of part of these numbers and um it's these cases are not representative of all the cases that are taking place at the lower court level um by any by any means but and i think that african americans who are bringing these cases are oftentimes better connected to whites in the community i think their cases mm. are at times stronger kind of from a legal sense um than many of the other cases, at times, I think they are involving larger sums of money than cases that would be just being heard by the local courts. But I think, despite all that, and kind of, I think it's really crucial to kind of recognize um, the way that these cases are not representative. But I think that they're still significant, because I think it's really kind of important that even if, and in many cases, that just stayed at the local court and kind of never went any further. That at during this period, even kind of this period where African Americans are shut out of every other branch of government in the South, um, they've been disfranchised. Kind of, there's tremendous violence. That they're still kind of negotiating one kind of Southern branch of government in some cases. Um, I think that kind of even if it's in small numbers, even if the cases. Um, don't represent all of the cases in the lower courts. I think the fact that they're there at all and that either even winning kind of these cases, some of these cases that do make it to the highest court is quite extraordinary during the time period when it's occurring. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I, yeah, that totally. And I was also really interested in this sort of story that you told about 
the sort of the role of the Freedmen's Bureau during the Reconstruction period, how African-American litigants kind of interacted with the representatives of the federal government instead of bringing their cases and how sort of the end of the Reconstruction period seems to have affected their ability to um, pursue certain kinds of cases. Yeah, so the, I think the Freedmen's Bureau is a key part of kind of the the answer to this puzzle of kind of how African-Americans are actually able to kind of litigate these cases, oftentimes against former masters and other whites in their community uh, within months, years of kind of being liberated um, from slavery. And there's a few things that I find kind of are crucial. One is kind of oftentimes actually their experiences in the Union Army, I think are a bridge to this. But I think the Freedmen's Bureau is one of the most important bridges that is kind of allowing um, this to happen. They're playing all kinds of um, roles in African-Americans ability to access the courts from pressuring Southern states to allow um, black testimony saying that they will continue to get involved in um, Southern courts and unless kind of Southern courts allow black testimony Um at times I kind of see in the records Freedmen Bureau officials serving as the lawyers um, for Black litigants or helping them to obtain um, lawyers. But the Freedmen's Bureau is relatively short-lived. I mean, they're only really kind of on the ground in large numbers for a few years um, at the beginning of Reconstruction. So they're playing this kind of crucial role as a bridge. But I think after a few years kind of as they grant gradually kind of recede from the picture. It's really kind of African Americans themselves who are kind of continuing with this mm. um, on their own in many ways. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of got the impression from the story you were telling in the book that sort of immediately after the war, there was a lot of litigation over kind of personal property. But then as we kind of got later in the 19th century, it, it seemed like a lot of the litigation was shifting to, to real estate as well. And African-Americans, you know, trying to hold on to small plots of land and white Southerners trying to defraud them of it. Is that a, does that track your, your sort of experience of the same material? Absolutely. Yes. I think the most kind of common type of case that I saw in the decades immediately after the Civil War was many of the cases involved kind of um, bequests. Um, so bequests kind of from former masters. Um, and so they are over kind of this um, personal property. Others are kind of over kind of smaller personal property, kind of like that, that mule that I mentioned um, in Henry Buey's case. There's also a number of cases over contracts, um, transactions. But you're absolutely right that kind of gradually African-Americans are, some African-Americans are gaining land. Um, and by 1900, about a quarter of African-Americans have succeeded in owning some kind of land in the U.S. South, even if it's a very small plot. And Many of the cases during the first two decades in particular of the 20th century involve them defending their um, land from 
from whites who are trying to defraud them um, of that land in many cases. Yeah. And, and it seemed like part of the story you were telling as well was like a social story about how immediately after the war, a lot of the disputes were between um, newly freed African-Americans and former masters. Um, so there was all kind of a lot of backstory and history between them. And then it gradually seemed to become more impersonal, like people with whom they didn't have that same kind of long personal interaction. This is one of the things I found most interesting um, myself and actually something that I've continued to kind of look into after finishing the book. Um, so I found that during Reconstruction, a full kind of two thirds of these cases between white and black Southerners are taking place between former masters and former slaves or the heirs um, of those two groups, which is quite kind of extraordinary that kind of there there have this long history um, of of slavery that they're bringing with them into the courtroom decades um, of kind of forced um, labor um, that kind of comes with them into the courtroom and so as they're testifying in these cases they are talking about the past as well as about kind of their changing relations with each other um, in the present, some of the cases originate, in fact, during slavery. Others originated after the fact as they continue to kind of work um, with each other, for each other um, after the war. What I found interesting is even after Reconstruction, so up until 1900, um, from the end of Reconstruction till 1900, one third of the cases still involve former masters. Um, and former slaves or their heirs. So kind of this legacy of slavery, slavery really kind of continues in the courts far longer um, than you might imagine um, that it would. Um, and they're using kind of this knowledge that they have about each other from, um, from their kind of lives of interactions with each other, in fact, to kind of leverage different, um, to win the cases. So kind of using knowledge of kind of um, saying kind of, a former master, for instance, um, might kind of say that they know that kind of their this former slave wasn't a good parent and kind of give off a list of kind of details. Um, or in another case, um, a formerly um, enslaved, um, the daughter of um, a woman who had experienced sexual violence um, from a former master brings up kind of this claim, this sexual violence and to kind of make her not bring that into the courtroom, um, this not bring this antebellum sexual violence into the courtroom, the former uh, master's lawyer settle out of court. Um, so it could be used either way, um, this knowledge that they have of each other. But at the end of the 19th century, as we know, kind of segregation, disfranchisement really set in on a much more widespread, formalized way. And this is where kind of you begin to see more and more kind of impersonal relationships. So kind of still in many cases, um, white witnesses are testifying on both sides of cases involving African-Americans, so both for and against them. But they oftentimes don't have this long history of relationships um, with the Black litigant. At times, they don't even know them um, at all. So kind of in some of these cases over fraud of land, they're just bringing in whites who kind of just to talk about the value 
um, of the Black litigants land, but in their testifying for Black litigants, but they actually have never even met um, the Black litigants. So there is a real shift that reflects what's going on um, in the South as a whole during this time. Yeah. And one thing that really struck me, especially from the kind of the narrative element of your book, was the way it just, it felt like white litigants were coming into court with this sort of presumption that they could act with impunity and almost seemed surprised when the courts and the people participating in the judicial system didn't go along with them. I think this is certainly true. And especially, I think, in the years kind of immediately after the Civil War, although I think this continues um, really kind of throughout the book, I think there is this assumption that, well, of course, um, of course, kind of Southern courts um, will side kind of with former masters, this idea that like, Southern courts have played such an essential role in upholding kind of the system of slavery, for instance. And I think this idea that that will continue. Um, and I think that it's not always in the interest of Southern courts to side for what with white litigants. Um, and I think the white litigants going into these cases don't always realize that. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because I thought you had some really interesting kind of speculations on why it was that African-American litigants were so much more successful in these civil cases than they were in ones that might be more properly characterized in like a civil rights uh, kind of framework. This is really the core question of my book is – so I, I, as I mentioned, I found kind of African-Americans are winning the majority of their cases against whites in these appellate courts. So the question really is, why are they winning these cases? And what I argue in the book and what I came to in the end was, for one, the vast majority of kind of civil cases that African-Americans are bringing are not looked upon by whites as threatening their their larger kind of system of white su- supremacy. If anything, they're kind of seen as being kind of somewhat neutral, kind of not really having um, having an impact. And at times, I think that these civil cases that Black litigants are bringing, that it was in fact in the not in the favor of kind of the individual white litigant, but it was in in kind of the interest of white society as a whole to decide in favor of the black litigant. So let me give you an example. So in those mm. cases um, in which a white person had defrauded an African-American out of their land um, at the height of Jim Crow in the first decade or two of the 20th century, as African-Americans, um, in order to win their cases, are oftentimes presenting themselves as having trusted whites as being quite um, in, in uneducated, as kind of having um, unequal kind of understanding of the law and of real estate of whites. And in deciding in their favor, um, in, in, in black litigants' favor in these cases, which white court, which these courts oftentimes do, they're in some ways upholding kind of this idea that African-Americans are in fact um, unequal, um, and which was very much kind of um, 
what they wanted to kind of show through this system um, of Jim Crow. In another case, for instance, um, where a former master had left money to a former um, slave and white heirs were bringing a case um, to try to regain that money. It's perhaps you could argue in the interest um, of white elites to uphold um, the right of a white testator to leave his property to who he chose. Um, and so in, in other cases, you could argue it's in their interest to uphold precedents that are also going to um, apply to whites. Um, so there's, I think, at times, as I said, sometimes it, it doesn't seem to kind of affect larger society. At other times, it's explicitly kind of in whites' interests to decide um, in their favor. At the same time, though, I would argue that African-Americans have a really strong interest in many of these cases in, in winning. So at times, their entire kind of family finances, the land that their family has worked for generations to obtain is in question in a case. And whether or not their family will kind of um, have some kind of um, means to kind of make a living, whether they're going to be able to kind of provide food for their children after having a serious accident where they can't work for many years. All of this is kind of at stake for African-Americans. So we're kind of whites, perhaps kind of don't, aren't as invested. African-Americans are oftentimes intensely invested um, in these cases. And so are oftentimes testifying in very specific ways and kind of working very pragmatically, doing everything that they can to actually win um, these cases. And I argue that it's this disjuncture between kind of African-Americans who really have a lot on the line in these cases and whites who see them as relatively inconsequential. Um, that leads in part to African-Americans being able to win at a time where they can no longer exercise the vote um, and have kind of lost so many other rights. Yeah. I mean, it struck me as almost kind of like this qualified um, conditional endorsement of the rule of law in protecting at least certain kinds of civil liberties in a limited way during this period of time, which is really interesting and not at all what I expected. Yeah, I think that the way that that kind of different branches of government can operate so differently is really interesting. And the way that kind of African-Americans could have lost all of their kind of rights to vote, but still kind of be exercising legal rights um, is important to kind of see those as not always kind of just operating in tandem. Um, but because of the structure of the systems themselves, because of how people view um, the vote was seen as much more dangerous, um, much larger numbers of African-Americans would be, would be exercising it, relatively small numbers of African-Americans um, are using the courts. And so there's different kind of things are playing out differently um, in these different branches of government. Yeah. Who was, who was representing these African-American litigants? So almost exclusively white lawyers are representing these cases by the time that they reach appellate courts. And um, there's a few reasons for this. One, it was 
the legal profession was one of the hardest professions for African Americans um, to access themselves um, during much of this time in the South. Um, and so relatively kind of few um, African Americans, perhaps two to three percent um, of lawyers in given states are African American um, throughout much of this period. And so African Americans um, are largely turning to white lawyers and are finding that white lawyers are quite receptive in the cases that reach um, state Supreme Courts, um, which again is not representative of all cases. And these white lawyers are not just kind of people who, lawyers kind of who are kind of um, just exclusively kind of taking on cases with African Americans. In fact, I found that um, oftentimes these white lawyers would only be bringing one or two cases involving African Americans um, to the state Supreme Court in their career. Um, and they oftentimes just seem to be very prominent individuals in the community. A number of them go on to um, become state Supreme Court justices themselves. Um, and during the years immediately after the Civil War, a number of them were Confederate Army officers. So African Americans are having to kind of bring their litigation against whites through using whites who oftentimes have very different interests than themselves. Um, very few of these lawyers are politically aligned with African Americans. And I would argue the reason why they're taking on these cases is similar to why, why lawyers take on cases today. It's many, much of it was oftentimes financial. Um, they're taking on cases where they stand to kind of win, um, significant, um, portions of an estate for instance. Mm. Um, in other cases, there seem to be some personal connections between Black litigants and the lawyers taking on their cases. In a few cases, there also seems to be a sense of kind of paternalism, um, where these lawyers kind of see themselves as kind of helping um, vulnerable kind of members of their community or a sense of professionalism. Um, but I think what's key here is that having white lawyers limits African-Americans' cases in many ways. They're having to bring their suits with kind of, again, kind of um, these attorneys who have very different interests than their own. Um, at, but at the same time, using a white lawyer also kind of makes their suits um, more acceptable to the white juries and white judges who are going to be hearing them. And so it's, it's a difficult thing. It allows these cases to be heard, but it also limits them in many ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain Atticus Finch quality to it, it seems like. Absolutely. Yes. I think that um, that these lawyers are boasting at times kind of about how how much kind of they are kind of representing kind of the African-American members of their community. They're boasting at kind of bar association dinners and times really kind of do seem to see themselves in that, in those terms, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Melissa, in, in closing, I, I got to say this, this book was amazing and I can see so many other potential projects growing out of it. So I want to know like, what's next, you know, what's, what's the next paper I get to read. There's a few different projects actually that I've been working on. Um, 
One that I've just finished actually is an article that thinks about civil and criminal cases involving African Americans side by side and thinks about um, how does how do Southern courts look differently if we don't just look at criminal cases or just look um, at civil cases involving African Americans, but we put both of kind of these two kinds of cases together um, and think about them side by side. And I start um, the article by thinking about um, two cases um, that happen um, in the same year um, in Alabama. In one of the cases, an Afri- is a criminal case, an African-American um, man is accused of rape. Um, it comes out raping a white woman. It comes out kind of during the case that um, that he had signed a time card and was actually at work. Um, it seems at the time of the rape, his um, the his employers kind of testify to this and show the time time record. But still, he is convicted um, and sentenced to death and executed. Um, for this rape that would have been almost impossible for him to have have done. And in that same year, um, in that same state, a civil case is brought by an African-American woman against a white woman whose attempt to defraud her of her property um, and has, um, and this black woman kind of successfully kind of um, leverages, brings kind of white witnesses in, kind of testifies um, in particular ways and wins. Um, her case regains her property from the white woman. And so one of the questions of this article is, how do we kind of think about these same kind of processes going on, the same courts kind of making these very different decisions um, in civil and criminal cases? Um, and how does that help us better understand um, on the one side criminal cases and on the other side civil cases to look at them side by side? Um, another thing that I'm working on is I've been increasingly interested in the role of Black women um, in these cases. And I'm, so I'm also kind of working on an article um, on that. I found that Black women are oftentimes... Um, These cases are really kind of showing them playing kind of pivotal roles in their communities um, as kind of um, doing property transactions, um, protesting um, for their rights, um, bringing cases against both whites and other African-Americans in their communities. Um, And finally, kind of another thing that I'm continuing to think about out of this is the way that civil cases are being used to protest violence. Um, against African Americans, including violence by police, um, violence within kind of the criminal justice system, and the way that civil cases in times could be particularly effective ways to protest um, this violence. Wow. Well, I can't wait to read all of them. And it's been really a pleasure talking to you about your fantastic book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well.
state, baby. As I walk the streets of the Harlems of the world, the black Harlems and the white Harlems, people are depressed. They are frustrated. They are downtrodden. They see no hope. They see no tomorrows. And I say to them always, keep the faith, baby. I say this because all over the world, people are not receiving God. They're not getting the assurances that once were given. Promises have been broken, and their dawn refuses to rise. They're walking in the midnights of sorrow, in the midnight of frustration, in the midnight of despair. Too long have they been promised the good life by the great white fathers. Too long have they waited in vain, black and white, poor and illiterate, for the better jobs, better housing, better education, better hospitals. Yet the conditions have not changed. Except for those who have always lived in the penthouses, for the people who live in the basements, in the cellar, their lives are still drab, ugly, have no hope. And I say to them, keep the faith, baby. Keep the faith. Because God's realities always exceed man's fondest dreams. Keep faith in God, whoever your God is. Keep the faith in whatever God you believe in. Keep the faith. He'll take care of things. He'll make a way out of no way. He'll open doors that no one can open and shut doors that no one can shut. And it won't be long before he proves it too. Keep the faith in yourself. You may be small to your oppressors, but you're bigger in your self-respect as a human being because as a human being, nobody is better than you are. All human beings, black and white, rich and poor, equal in the sight of God. Keep your faith in the life of your fellow man even though he abuses you. When he abuses you, he makes himself a lesser man. Ah, a great man once said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray, 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 pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Keep your faith. Keep your faith because one day, black and white, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, rich and poor, are going to walk the face of this earth with joyful hearts, happy in the togetherness of brotherhood. And the masses are going to run this world. The big man's day is gone. Not only because it is any man's world, but it's also and always has been and always will be God's world. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, baby. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by any foe, that will not tremble upon the brink of any earthly woe. Keep your faith, baby. Walk together, talk together, love together, worship together, live together, and we'll win tomorrow. Because God has no other hands than our hands. He has no other feet than our feet. And he has no other tongue than our tongue. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, baby. 